the focus on female entrepreneurs is a focus on kind of these small niche ideas. And certainly they're almost always wonderful and valid and needed because women are coming up with business ideas that fill a void that no one else is doing um, and men are not thinking of. But I also feel like it's important for women to start all kinds of businesses from like cool, small niche solutions to like an everyday real problem to I want to take on Amazon. Launching the next huge business would be a massive challenge for anyone. But high-level business experience and two years of focus have kept Julie Bornstein on the path to the next level of success. Julie is the founder of The Yes, a new shopping app built with you in mind. Your sizes, your brands, your style, and you'll be seeing it everywhere. Coming up, you'll hear why Julie hit the reset button and went to Harvard and why that decision has opened up an entire new valuable network. The power of networking and how a trip to the airport with Jeff Bezos in the early days of Amazon led to a job for Julie's husband. Why asking the CEO of Starbucks for a job while at a conference turned into a bigger career move than expected. The importance of always following up why a dream job that took six months of effort to get was absolutely worth it, and why abandoning a goal of becoming a CEO of a big brand to build a game-changing shopping platform from scratch made so much sense. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Julie, I am so excited to be here with you this afternoon. This conversation has been a long time coming. We were originally supposed to record back in March before before everything changed in the world. So thank you so much for taking this time now to be here with us today. It's such a pleasure. I'm so glad we're finally doing this. Yes, we made it happen. So you have quite the incredible career, starting out working many corporate jobs for some of the most well-known brands, but you have most recently launched your own startup, The Yes. Before we dive into your new business, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how your background really led you to launch your new venture. Yeah, it starts with the fact that I grew up in Syracuse, New York, a very snowy and boring place, and spent every weekend as a girl in the mall. And I, I know to- the mall there, Carousel Mall, right? Yes, although that was not there in the <laughs> 70s and 80s when I was growing up. So that mall has definitely changed the landscape in Syracuse. At the time, it was a much smaller mall called Fayetteville Mall and another one called Shopping Town. And I don't think either exists anymore, but as the world has changed. And I could walk to the Fayetteville Mall. So I was you know, walking to and from every weekend. And I also wanted to be a fashion designer. And so I did a lot of sketching and thought about what I would want to create that I couldn't find. And so I just you know, had spent a lot of time thinking about how hard it was to find what I wanted, how inefficient it was, but I really love shopping and I love exploring and I love finding things for friends and I love fashion. And I remember when I was 10, two things happened that are just really clear memories for me. One is I got a pair of Gloria Vanderbilt jeans for fifth grade, the first day of fifth grade. And I like remember laying them out and being ready to wear them and how excited I was. And then for my birthday, I got a pair of Calvin Klein purple pants. Again, this is 1980. The Calvin Klein logo was underneath where you put a belt. I got an adorable, stretchy heart rainbow belt. And the dilemma was, do I wear it and cover up the Calvin Klein logo? So I always had a great appreciation for brands. And then I grew up and I got involved in a bunch of political issues too, that were really compelling to me. And I ended up going to Harvard and being a government major. And so I had this interest, you know, in fashion in the back of my mind, but I sort of got interested in the pro-choice movement. I ran the, co-ran the pro-choice 
student group founded and ran it with a woman named Jessica Yellen, who's a now an accomplished correspondent and writer. And so that was a real passion of mine. During my summers, and I highly recommend this for all young people, I got a bunch of different internships. And so through those, I started to get a sense of what interested me and what didn't. I worked for a nonprofit and was kind of frustrated by how slow things went. I worked for a senator one summer in Washington, D.C., which was such an honor. And one of my thoughts was maybe someday I'd want to be an elected official. And um, boy, did that sort of dispel any myth for me. I just couldn't believe how little influence and power and control even a senator could have on sort of the world. And so I decided when I was graduating from college, business just felt like a better thing for me. It felt like someplace I could actually have an impact. I'm really a doer. So I thought if I'm going to go work in business, I should go work in something that interests me, which is fashion. And at the time, it was 1992, and there were really four brands. One was Esprit, which I loved growing up. And when we took a trip out West, it was kind of the Mecca for me. We went to the Esprit outlet. That was like- I loved that brand too. (laughs) I know. It was good. And then the others were really Ralph Lauren, Calvin Klein, and Donna Karen, which were the big fashion brands in New York at the time. And so San Francisco felt very far away. I didn't know anyone there. I focused on the three New York companies. I wrote them letters. This was pre-internet, so you couldn't even email. I don't know how we did anything, to be honest. So I ended up getting a job and going to work for Donna Karen on the DKNY line. And I was doing very junior merchandising function, working between sales and um, production. But one thing I did there, not because I necessarily knew what I was doing, but it was just out of instinct, was we had computers sitting on our desks and no one was using them. We were still using paper and pencil. And the orders were being forecasted literally manually on graph paper by my boss. And I thought, we have this computer here. We have last year's orders. Why don't we just create a basic program that does some forecasting for us based on actual sales? So the what they called MIS person at the time, which was Management Information Systems, and she did our IT, was kind of an idle person and she was great. And so I grabbed her and we built this program together. And that became kind of the first forecasting tool that we used in the company. And so it was fun and interesting, but I felt like I didn't feel like I was learning enough. And I felt like, I don't know, this isn't right. I'm young. I got to go try something else. So I actually networked my way into sort of this world of public private sector. I thought maybe that would be a good interest of my combined interest. And I um, worked in um, a corporate foundation making grants to nonprofits. But after two years, it was a kind of slow pace. And I felt like I'm not contributing to the bottom line of the company. And I'm not actually, you know, helping to run a nonprofit, I should probably hit reset, go back to business school, get some more ideas, explore the world a little more broadly, and figure out what I want to do. And so I applied to business school and um, ended up getting into Harvard and going. And I had a great experience in which I I didn't know what I wanted to do. All the investment banks and the consulting firms at the time, you know, entrepreneurship wasn't really a thing yet. Young people were not getting funding to start companies, which changed radically, like in from when I started to two years after I graduated. And so I ended up just getting a job with an investment bank because I felt like that would give me hard skills in the absence of knowing what I wanted to do. And I worked could work with retail and consumer companies. And so that was a great experience. Meanwhile, the guy I met at business school who became my husband, but we were just dating at the time of graduation, was basically in a class that had the very first case on Amazon. Um, And it was a business school case on Amazon versus Barnes and Noble. Does Amazon stand a chance? And um, Jeff Bezos came to the class as the protagonist to, you know, be there to discuss his company. And um, half the class, by the way, said, no, they didn't stand a chance. And at the end, Bezos needed a a ride to the airport and didn't want to pay for a taxi who was an entrepreneur, you know, trying to save money. And the professor knew my husband was sort of interested and said, do you want to drive Bezos to the airport? So he gets his dinky two-door Nissan Sentra and drives (laughs) Bezos to the airport and ends up, you know, getting into a discussion and interview and and ends up going to work for Amazon. What Um, a story. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. And not Power of networking right there, right? It really is. And I do think, you know, if, if anyone's listening and thinking about whether or not to go to business school, by far... The best thing about it is the network that you make and just all the new doors that open and opportunities you wouldn't have thought about. Um, And I know it's a struggle for some people to decide if they should leave their careers to go. um, But that really was, I think, the best part of it all. So fast forward, my husband loves Amazon and is going to stay in Seattle. We decide to get married. And I am in San Francisco working in banking and realize pretty quickly it's not where I want to be. I'm sitting across from all these really interesting retailers. And I'm so much more interested in helping them think about their business. So 
Seattle's my target, which helps. It's always helpful when you have some narrowing function, right? When you're looking at the world yes. of choices. Um, so I had a couple of companies that were existed in Seattle that were my focus. And everyone had said to me, Nordstrom's very insular. It's really family run. And everyone's been on the shoe floor since they were 12. And that didn't really sound like a great fit. And I'd worked with both retailers in the fashion space and in the restaurant and sort of coffee space. So I just worked on the sale at the bank of Seattle's Best Coffee to AFC Enterprises, which was a large conglomerate. And Howard Schultz was speaking at an event in Seattle that my husband was going to. And he said, do you want to fly up and come listen? We were commuting to Howard speak. And so I read his book and I went to hear him speak and I was so moved and inspired. And I waited my turn to chat with him afterwards and was like, all right, I never once sort of did this in business school, but this is my moment. I've got to just like sort of get up the guts and talk to him. So I did. And I knew I had this topic of just having worked on the sale of this coffee chain to at least have an interesting momentary conversation. And at the end, I said, I know this is a crazy question, but I really want to work for Starbucks. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I think, you know, being the assistant to the CEO would be really interesting. And he kind of laughed. Fortunately, he has a good sense of humor. And he said, well, that would be a boring job, but why don't you send me your resume and we'll take a look. Do you remember anything specifically that Howard said during that conference that really inspired you? You know, he was just, he was very humble. He was interested in kind of the story that I had to tell him. And when I asked him about working for him, you know, he said that wouldn't be a very interesting job, but we're thinking about how bringing in a few MBAs could help us think about expanding the business. And I really appreciated the fact that he was willing to engage with me as someone who just walked up and, you know, I've done it now being in that position and having young people approach me when someone approaches me and they're clearly really interested in my business and they've done their homework and they're bright and they are interested. I will always say, send me a resume. Um, and so at the time I just thought, Oh my God, that's amazing. And now being in, you know, not quite in his shoes, that would be way too big a shoes to claim to be in, but being an executive who's potentially in the hiring position all it takes is someone to approach you, whether it's through an email or in person, and I, as I got a chance to do, and really express sort of their interest and why they're interested, that you're at least going to engage them and, you know, find out if there's an opportunity for them to join. Yeah, so no, he I did that. I followed up immediately. You know, at that time, it was send a fax to his assistant. Oh, my um, God. And then I called back a week later because I hadn't heard, which is another reminder, always follow up. And she said, yes, actually, he mentioned you and he wants to meet with you. Can we set up a time? And so we set up an hour for me to come meet him. I flew up to Seattle. We ended up spending two hours talking. And, you know, I think he was just, he was inspiring. He was really thinking about the future. The internet was just becoming a thing. What was Starbucks role? How are they going to sort of expand their productivity in their four walls. So it was a really fun, interesting conversation. And I ended up going to work for Starbucks in an area that was really what we called new business ventures. It was how do we expand the categories to really broaden Starbucks beyond being a coffee shop and being more of a lifestyle business. And so I was there at the early days. We um, The mandate was find some sort of related categories that could work well. Music was the top of our list. So I did research on what music companies were out there that could be interesting and found a startup called Hear Music that had four stores and they were trying to do sort of digital music before digital music existed. They were trying to do music discovery. So in their stores, they had these sort of jerry-rigged CD players where with cards, um, like index cards describing the artist, and you could go to a different listening station and, and discover the artist. And the founder of the company was a total entrepreneur. He had started the company right out of Williams College. And, um, you know, it was such a clearly like love of music, heartfelt business. And so when I called him, cold called him, hi, this is Julie Bornstein from Starbucks. He said, I've been waiting for you to call. Um, and he had this whole vision and we ended up buying the company and it became kind of the engine behind, you know, music and then movies and entertainment more broadly kind of being discovered at Starbucks and selling through Starbucks. And Starbucks was actually, I think the last place to be selling physical CDs and then they transitioned to other things. So that was the early chapter. What happened there was that as I was at Starbucks, I really was obsessed with e-commerce and started to see little things pop up. And to me, it was the perfect marriage of 
shopping, discovery, technology, and efficiency. And so, you know, just even from the day before my husband even met Bezos, that Amazon turned their um, website on, my brain was just sort of going with all these things that you could do. And it really was my love. And I actually felt like it was something that I was innately good at. And so I really decided we were going to be staying in Seattle for the near future. Nordstrom announced that they were launching e-commerce. And from that moment, I spent the next six months pulling every like connection and string and email and whatever I could do to get them to hire me. It took six months, but finally Dan Nordstrom hired me. And then I spent five years at Nordstrom, really helping to create that business. And then we grew that business from about 10 million to about 350 million. We can go back if it's relevant later. But then I joined Urban Outfitters where they had kind of just started an e-com business and really got that going and then was recruited by Sephora. And my husband didn't love living in Philly. So moving out to San Francisco where Sephora was based solved many problems. And it turned out to be a wonderful career move. We got to not only relaunch Sephora.com, but my team and I launched Beauty Insider, the loyalty program. I love Beauty Insider. (laughs) The world changed dramatically during those years of 2007 to 2015. And we did all sorts of really cool, innovative things on the digital side and really helped that whole business continue to be a leader as it was when it came to the US and the physical store side. And then I met Katrina Lake, the founder of Stitch Fix, while I was at Sephora, She, as a great entrepreneur, was very persistent. The first email I got, I ignored. The second email I got, I, you know, said, okay, sure, well, I'll meet. She came to my office. The moment she described to me what she was doing, you know, I had a deep connection to the idea. I loved it. I'd thought a lot about really data and shopping online. And then I became a board member and helped sort of her and the business scale from about a few million dollars to a $200 million and about my first two and a half years. And then as an investor and advisor, I couldn't help but be obsessed with that business. And then I joined full-time as a COO in 2015. And from that time, we grew the business from about 200 million to about a billion over the next two and a half years and readied the company to go public. And it was incredibly fun and exciting and stressful and hard. And Then I decided, all right, I've seen it all. I want to start my own business. I know the idea. It's really the next sort of opportunity. Tested the waters with some VCs who I've respected and started this business in officially in the beginning of 2018. And then we launched in May of this year. So just two months ago. What was it like launching during this pandemic? Very challenging. You know, I think it's, total whiplash. No one really knows how to make sense of this. Every day I wake up and I'm like, is this just a bad dream? I think we all have our versions of that. But I would say we have been so focused for two years on building in our minds what's going to be the best way to shop. So I really feel blessed both to have something very sort of mission driven and focused, a team that's small enough that we can really stay connected during these times where we're all working remotely and a very clear path to what we need to do. And while the world is in a very different state and we've had to adapt, I would say mostly like kind of the product we're featuring and the way we're talking and the expectations and all of those things, I feel really lucky to have something that we feel is still relevant in some ways more relevant than ever. And that gives us all a lot of purpose every day, you know, the team when we wake up um, and go to work. Coming up, the mission of the yes and why Julie abandoned her vision of becoming a CEO of a big brand. So I recently downloaded the Yes app and I'd love to learn how did the idea come to be and what is the mission? So since my days at Nordstrom.com back in the early 2000s, there were a number of things that really struck me as being highly inefficient about the way the e-commerce model worked. The first being that owning inventory is incredibly expensive and it limits how much range of product you can carry. It relies on buyers to be able to forecast what consumers are going to want. And 
it really ends up creating this extra step of shipping where you're shipping from a warehouse of a brand to the warehouse of a retailer, then the retailer ships it to the consumer, then the retailer has to ship back the product to the brand at the end of the season. So lots of inefficiencies and limits to how much you can sell. The second was that taking photos of every product that we were trying to sell was incredibly laborious and expensive. And the truth is that most brands have beautiful photography that better showcases their product than any, you know, retail photo studio that's trying to sort of quickly get everything out there can do. And I would say the third is that we were selling so much product and trying to show all of it to everyone. And the more brands there are and the more websites there are, the more overwhelm there is in shopping. And so, you know, if you take any woman who's sort of looking for something, she ends up having 10 tabs open of different stores and it's so exhausting and overwhelming. And it's like too much choice. You actually can't make a decision by the end of it. That's what um, happens so to me. All, exactly I know, we all know the me. experience of going through and even on one site, you open up Shop Up or Nordstrom and you're looking for some new dresses for work in the olden days, or, you know, now you're looking for some cute tops to wear on your Zoom calls. And, you know, you go through 20 pages and the things you see on page one are no more or less relevant than the things you see on page 20. So you feel compelled to keep going. But by the end, you're just sort of, it's like a futile effort and you're exhausted and you close your computer or your phone and you go to bed. And so, you know, that experience is just getting more extreme over time. And then the last piece is, you know, as AI has really evolved and technology has developed. There have been two big changes in technology that have been real opportunities that we took advantage of. One is, as I mentioned, AI and the ability, if you're trying to make a recommendation to combine human expertise and really artificial intelligence to be able to make a recommendation that's theoretically better than a human themselves could do, that can pick up on patterns and understand patterns better than any human can do. And the second thing is the technology to do a single cart so that you can basically allow people to buy from many places through one quick sort of checkout. And so those two technologies, along with, I would say, the advent of mobile and sort of the ease of being able to do everything on your phone really came together with some of my older learnings about how inefficient owning inventory was and um, how inefficient it is to take photos. And I would say the cherry on top is Amazon and just what a scary role they play in the ecosystem. You know, they are changing the price dynamics for everyone in an unfair way, because obviously they have these AWS margins that change their ability to be able to have smaller retail margins. And I just read an article the other day about how all the retailers who are trying to survive by leveraging their e-commerce sites, but who also have stores are struggling because the profitability of their e-commerce businesses are not what their store businesses are, which is crazy if you think about it. Having physical retail store, the real estate, the people, theoretically, that should be a more expensive model. But because of all the pressures on e-commerce, you know that model is not as profitable as it should be. And so the dynamic and the role that Amazon then ends up playing and really knocking off brands and really not being a good place for brands to thrive, but feeling like maybe we have to do it as a brand because that's where all the growth is going is a very disturbing pattern that is happening as the world evolves in digital um, retail. And so my feeling was all of those things together created this need to build something that is good for brands that is leveraging technology to get rid of some of the physical problems that make actually running an e-commerce business expensive and challenging and helps the consumer by really finding the right product for them and making shopping fun and easy and interactive. And as you spend more time on the platform, it gets better and smarter for you. So we all know we've spent how many hours? I mean, me in the last 20 years shopping on websites. Courtney and- is the online shopping queen you're talking to right now. <laughs> yes, I, I, I'm very efficient when it comes to, to online shopping, although I return probably 50 to 80% of it, but I have, I have my own uh, 
ways of shopping online yes. to, to make it easy. And, and really good shoppers online do, as do I. And so my thought was, how do I bring my shopping savvy online to, you know, more people? Because my sisters and my friends would come to me and say, I'm looking for this and I can't find it. And I would say, I know the three places to go. Yeah. I know exactly the keywords to use to find it or where it's going to be buried. But it's really the onus is on the shopper to know all of these complex things and how the catalog is built and what the taxonomy is. So my thesis was shoppers need a better experience and brands need a better experience. The world has changed. Technology has enabled things. Let's bring all of that together and build the best shopping platform that could exist today if you were to start from scratch. And by the way, as a side note, I was being recruited for CEO roles at a few big retailers. And my feeling like at the time was, I've always wanted to be the CEO of a big retailer. That was my dream for a very long time. But as I thought about really what I thought was going to succeed in the future, I knew I needed to start from scratch. And if I went into one of these companies, you know, it would be so much around managing decay and managing legacy systems and legacy organizations and thinking. And, you know, it's such a big undertaking to make such a change. It's why I think as a startup, I have a chance to compete with these big guys is because I realized if you start from scratch, you have a better chance of building something that's just what the consumer wants and that only focuses on what matters today as opposed to what's mattered in the past. Julie, can you talk a little bit about the process of actually starting this business? So you have this idea. What did you do first? And I know that you raised money. Can you talk a little bit about what that process was like as well and some learnings? Yes. So the way I started this was by putting all my thoughts down on paper and building kind of a deck of just what is the story? What is the problem in the market today? And how is what I'm doing sort of addressing it? I think during that process, I also really had to ask myself, it's not about the idea. I mean, the idea is a good idea, but anyone could do this. And really, as you read what my idea is, it's very logical if you've been following the space. So the question is, am I the person to do this? Like, do I have an outsized advantage to make this business successful? And I really believed I did. I really believed that there were few people who have spent as much time, have given as much thought, have as deep a passion, and also who really understand both the technology side and kind of the consumer side and the brand side. And so I have this unique set of, you know, I was 47, I have a unique set of experiences. And, you know, many people say, oh, if you're older, you can't, you don't really have what it takes to start a company. It just takes all this stuff. But I decided I do. It's just my personality. It's not about my age. And I really thought I have an advantage. There are all these interesting tech businesses that are being started that don't have a business model, you know, let alone understanding what the consumer really wants. And then there's all these fashion people who don't really understand how you have to build the tech to make it work. And so I had convinced myself, and that's the most important thing I think you have to do because all these things that happen along the way, you know, there's doubt every day. So you have to come back to like, what is your central grounding point of why I'm doing this and why I believe I'm going to succeed? How long did it take you to get to that point? It was pretty early. I, I would say that it was probably, I started, I left Stitch Fix at the end of September of 2017. And I started talking right away to investors in October. And I was doing two things. I was trying to get a sense of if people would be interested in funding this idea. And I was also trying to find a technical co-founder. And to do that, I found the VCs were the most useful because they're really the source of that kind of network. And I didn't have someone in my network who I wanted to work with, um, who made sense to work with, which is the best of all, if, if you already know that person, but I didn't. But cold called some, I, you know, Kirsten Green from Forerunner was always someone I respected a lot. She's done so many interesting investments in the consumer tech space for women. So Glossier and Away and Fair and lots of businesses. She was an early investor in Jet and in Dollar Shave Club, which were obviously two big wins. So she was someone I sort of had on my radar screen. And I hadn't ever worked with her. She was not an investor at Stitch Fix, but I once been at a conference with her and I think maybe spoken on a panel. And so I just, you know, sent her an email, a blind email. And I mean, it's so important what you put in those emails. I can't even tell you, but she replied right away. And, you know, my advantage is that I've been around the block. And so I had, a, you know, people knew me. It's so different if you're starting and you're totally unknown. You know, I look at Katrina Lake, who founded Tricks and her background, and she, you know, had a few years of work in VC and consulting and started this from her apartment at business school. And so when she was trying to get money, she was totally unknown. And it was, a very, you know, she raised 750K 
And it was such a different experience for her than for someone like me who, you know, I raised 10, 11 million, my first round, it came together really quickly. I had more interest than I did need. So I got to pick um, my investors and everybody was willing to take a meeting with me. So I recognize how different that is. And I also recognize that for all of my hard work and my long journey and the successes I've had, that was really what I had earned from that. Once you, you know, get the money, then you have to prove it all over again. But to get those initial conversations was very different having been a known sort of entity. Do you feel that pressure now having raised this money and launching this business now because you have all these investors? I really do. Um, it's so different when you start taking other people's money. And so I feel a deep responsibility, both I would say, you know, originally the responsibility was to myself. I'm very driven and I was like, I'm going to make this a success. But now I feel both a responsibility to my investors and to my employees. They've all taken a massive bet on me. And yeah, I mean, it's my responsibility to make sure that we make this thing an enormous success. And, you know, part of it is having the right investors who can be helpful and help you make it a success and having the right team who obviously I can't make this a success on my own. It's a hundred percent a team effort, but it's such a, like going from having the idea and the dream and being really on your own with that to having a team of investors and employees who all are in it with you and it's their dream too is such a fun experience. You know, I feel like so deeply grateful for everyone who has joined me on this journey. So, yeah, I mean, I am completely motivated by making this successful, not just because I actually first and foremost, believe it's a consumer need that I'm dying to solve, but also because I feel committed to that team. And the business model right now is you're using AI to curate products that women might want. What is the, the function on the back end to find all of these products and actually deliver them? Yes. Let's talk about what the actual product yeah. is. So the app is really built on five sort of pieces of technology that are all required to make this work. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to get brands on board. We knew we needed a lot of brands and we wanted to make sure that we started with the best brands because it's harder to get them once you, you know, if you start in the middle, it's hard to go up. Um, we really wanted to start at the top. And the idea is high-low shopping, but great brands who stand for something and are meaningful as opposed to the world of generic brands out there that are copycats. And so... In order to bring on lots of brands, we needed to do two things. One was build sort of our pitch deck to them in a way that was really clear and compelling and get them to talk to us. And so I'll get back to sort of that process after because that's a really fun story. And so we needed to build the technology that could enable us to integrate with any kind of e-commerce platform. So a brand needs to have an e-commerce site. And so we built sort of a big technology software layer that allows us to integrate with any brand, no matter what platform they're on, if they have e-commerce and do all the work on our end. So I know how limited those brands are with their tech resources, and that's not the business they're in. And so I was willing to build whatever it took to do that. And my co-founder, who's our CTO, um, and the reason that I loved him so much is he really believes anything can be done with technology. And so no problem feels too big to tackle. And so we have just the most amazing engineers who have built this really complicated system that frankly, no one else has, not even Google or Pinterest or Facebook, who's trying to integrate with all of these brands. We built something that was very specific for fashion that understands how to read the data of a site, no matter what its structure is, understand how to pull in all of the data points, including any tag and copy, any categorization they have, any images, and then is able to normalize the data. And then we put it into kind of this next piece of technology we built, which is really the algorithm. And that is basically a process where we built very extensive taxonomy, the most extensive that exists in fashion, because you really need to understand every dimension that exists in order to then make a recommendation. And then we basically tag every product with about 500 attributes. And that happens automatically. And then we also built a dynamic e-commerce system that basically adapts to each user. So with everybody who has the app, 
the store is really a store built around you and it tunes to you over time. So on the app, as a user, you come on, you download the app and you fill out some fun Q&A that gives us really high signal about some critical data points around your, your preferences up front. And then you yes and no products as you're shopping. And so as opposed to all those sites where you spend all these hours and it doesn't get any smarter, every time you're shopping, we get smarter about you and we learn all these things about you, about what you like and don't like. And I have the app open now. So now when I check out, I'm checking out directly on your app instead of going to Zara or Nordstrom's or any other site. That's right. And so the fourth part of the technology we built is the single checker. And so it's super easy. What we wanted to do was control the actual customer experience. So you don't have to go off to another site and then go through their checkout. Everything's basically one click on our app. And then we take care behind the scenes of all of the technology that happens for the order to be placed, for it to be shipped to you. We know notify you as it's, you know, in each of its states with a really quick notification and email, and you can opt into whichever you want. And so if there's any problems, we'll take care of it for you. You don't have to be bothered by it. You will get the package shipped to you by the brand in the brand's packaging. And so at first, you know, people were like, well, but if you order from two different brands, do you get two different packages? But if you think about it with Amazon or with even Nordstrom, you're getting packages shipped from lots of different places. And so in some ways, you know, when I place a big order on a department store site and I get this big box, I'm a little overwhelmed by when am I going to have time to try all this stuff on? In our case, you sort of get it one by one, you try it on, it's really easy. There's a label either in the box or you print out the label from your app and it's very easy to return if you want to. You rate it as you're going. So we learn about why you returned it so we can get better for you in the future. And then the last system that we built just to sort of finish the technology piece is a price comparison engine that exists for fashion at the SKU level. So if that product is sold less anywhere else, we can price match it for you. So you never have to worry about sort of the price comparison piece and going and seeing if it's cheaper elsewhere. What if you have a coupon code or a gift card to a retailer? So we will match those. Right now, we will match it on the back end. So if you just text us, we'll match it for you. Ultimately, we'll build all of that into the app experience. Well, I am so excited to start using this app because I am definitely your target audience. I get very overwhelmed by online shopping. I always ask Courtney to help me because she's the online shopping queen. So Mm -hmm. I can't wait to start using this because... I need some good Zoom tops. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The other thing that's interesting is, you know, we have like the goal of the product is to work for both a savvy shopper and kind of the overwhelmed shopper. And so one of the things that I have found is now I pretty much universally buy everything on the yes, because what it's doing is it's surfacing the things that I wasn't even thinking I was looking for, but love. And so, you know, it's, it's really suggestive and there's so much power in the suggestion and the suggestions just get better over time. And so it's a real nice combination of the search is really powerful. And so if you are looking for something specific, you'll see, so say you're looking for sort of a red top and you type that into search, what you see, Stephanie, and what you see, Courtney, are two different things, right? So you guys see the results based on the brands you like, the styles you like, the price points, all of those things. So everyone's search results are tailored to them. Everything's actually there. It's just re-ranked according to you. And then it's shown if it's in your size. So we actually recommend the size for you because- the whole idea of like, oh, do I go up or down in this you know, brand is always, yeah. like we're all in between sizes. And so we've done all the work on the back end to map basically the way that brands are sized. And if this one runs slightly large and you're kind of in between these two sizes, we can up, help you. So we just automatically suggest your size. So we only show you the stuff that's available in your size, kind of what we call above the line. You can see everything ultimately if you keep going down. Up next launching a company during a pandemic, and why women need to start more businesses with a big footprint. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entrepreneistas. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneistapodcast.com. A common theme from all of the guests we've interviewed on our podcast so far is that they've all relied on support from other women through groups. So we decided to start an Entrepreneista Facebook group. Head on over to Facebook and search Entrepreneistas. We really wanted to create a community for Entrepreneistas to connect, share ideas, help each other solve problems, and learn from all of our collective experiences. If you join the group, it's really a safe space to talk about being an entrepreneur, sharing your wins, asking for help when needed, And we can't wait to meet you so we can learn and grow together. 
I love the name, The Yes. How did you come up with The Yes? I give full credit to a guy named Anthony Sperduti. He is at a firm called Mythology. They're a branding firm. They were known as Partners in Spade. I got their name from Kirsten Green, one of my investors, as a firm to work with. And they certainly weren't the lowest priced, but I had had so many challenging experiences with branding projects in my former companies that I knew it was really important to get the name right and to get the brand positioning right. And so my name was Zipper. And then we went to this firm and we said, all right, you know, we need both the name and really sort of a brand positioning. And he came up with the yes. I said, that's so weird. You're crazy. And then they put together, we had a couple of other names. They put together kind of these visual stories on each of the names and they did zipper first and they made it as cool as it possibly could be because we know it's not that cool. And then at the end they did the yes. And boy, you know, were we impressed? Like it just had so much power. It was so positive. It was all about kind of what you liked and what your yes is. And it obviously spoke to things broader than fashion, which might be in our future. And so we loved it. He's a really talented guy if, you know, anyone's looking for someone like that. And so it's worked great because it's ended up becoming kind of the moniker of how you interact with the app, which has been really fun. I love the name. And like you said, it's so important to to get that right, right from the get-go. So I know we talked about this a little bit when we first started chatting, but I would love to hear a little bit more about your marketing strategy. And I'm assuming you had to pivot a little bit because you were planning on launching, the pandemic happened, and now you have this brand new company you're bringing to market and have to start acquiring users for this business to to actually work. How did you go about launching during the pandemic and what does and did your marketing strategy look like? So we were planning to launch on March 25th. And as we all know, March 25th was kind of the height of us realizing we were starting to be in a pandemic and you know we couldn't see straight. So because our launch was really predicated on getting press, that was sort of how we were thinking of first launching is just, you know, getting the word out. We knew that was the wrong time to do it. It also just felt kind of tone deaf. And so we held off and we ended up deciding this wasn't going away quickly. And May, there was sort of like a little bit of a feeling of hopefulness. I think that quickly turned to a really big focus on Black Lives Matter and then a realization that there's going to be a whole another wave. So in some ways, we got lucky with the window. We've really thought about marketing very specifically around you build a great product and people will come. That is truly my belief. And so I don't want to do a lot of investing in sort of traditional marketing until I feel like this is a product that people come to, they get it, They love it and they want to use it again and spread the word. So we are very, very focused on learning from our early users how they like the product and what we need to fix and where we can improve before we want to really invest um, in traditional digital marketing. And so we really got the majority of our users through launching and the press that gave us and word of mouth since then. And that has been a great way to get a big initial user base from whom to learn. And we now have the next two months, very clear marching orders, things to improve and what we're going to do more. And we're also testing kind of how for people who do love the app. And there are some like enormous, I would say super users who, what we found is that people who actually download and love the app are coming back and buying again. So we have a crazy high return rate and a very high engagement rate. So about 80% of people who do download the app start creating a yes list. So that's been really exciting. How are you getting the feedback from them? Are you sending them surveys? Yeah, we're doing a ton of things. We ask every user to rate us on personalization after they use the app and answer of two questions. That has been our single most useful data because we get real data directly from the user. We're not trying to extract what they were saying and we can look at their profile and understand when it goes well or when it doesn't, why. So our engineers are deep in the data around the responses from those users and that's the most helpful. The second is we have sort of the app wired up so we can understand all the patterns that are happening. So making sure before you launch that you actually have a good tool. We use Amplitude, super helpful. And then the third is we do user interviews. So we do user testing every week where we ask people to go through the app and show us how they're using it. And then we've also just done a series of deeper dive interviews, all of those things. And then we get feedback and comments. We let users use Instabug so they can shake the app and either give us a comment or tell us if there's a bug. So we're really focused in kind 
kind of this phase of learning as much as we can and making the product even better. And the organic sharing that's happening is what's driving growth right now. And in the future, we have lots of marketing ideas and we have a great social channel. So our Instagram, the Yes Instagram is super fun. It's run by Taylor Tomasi Hill, who's our fashion director. She has such a fun spin on things. And so that's another way where we've, um, we have about 60,000 followers and growing. And so that's another way where we're engaging with our users. How big is your team now? Our team is 35 people. Wow. We're growing, but slowly. We want to be really careful. We want to make our, our cash last as long as humanly possible. And so, you know, there will be probably 40 by the end of the year. Um, and it's a great focus team. About 25 of those 35 are engineers. And is everyone working remotely? Everyone is working remotely. We actually have an office in the Bay Area and an office in New York City, both of which are closed right now. But that's sort of our two hubs. Our brand team is based in New York and meatpacking. And so when we do go back to work, we're all really excited to do that. But we are all adjusting to working at home. Can you share any work from home tips on your learnings from the past few months? I think one of the things I've realized is how important it is to make sure you start your meetings with a little, just give yourself five minutes to have just a normal conversation about life and what's happening with the team. So, you know, as much as we're all business, the ability to connect with people on a human level when you don't have the physical office to get together with is just a lot harder, but it's so important. And, you know, I've gained, there's two groups of people I have deep sympathy for. One is women and men. Actually, we have some men who are kind of primary caretakers with young children. I have teenagers who are very self-sufficient, but younger kids, they just, you know, they are literally, they basically joined our workforce. I mean, Uh they're on the screens. Those people have to work more flexibly. And the second is people that live alone. And we have a bunch of people who are in their twenties and live alone. And it's really lonely when you can't see people. And so we're doing our first socially distanced outdoor gathering today. You know, we're just hanging out in my backyard. I think everybody's still really nervous, even though the rates in the Bay Area um, specifically are low or our area, I guess I should say the Bay is big, but we're still going to be super careful. But I think just any form of human connection you can make feels really important. And what would you say you're most grateful for every day? I think every day I'm most grateful for my family, their support and kind of the physical comforts and safety that we have relative to the people who are just at much higher risk during a situation like that. So that's probably what I'm most grateful for. I also am really grateful for how much the team has just sort of showed up every day in spite of all the challenges that are going on in the world. I'm grateful for having work that feels meaningful and that I love to distract me from all the sadness that's going on and the fear. And I would say I'm also, there's been like a few new routines that I've developed as a result of working from home. One of them is my husband and I, who both have you know busy jobs, travel a lot in our prior life. And we didn't intersect that often. And now that we're both working from home, we end the day and at about 6.30 or 7 every evening, we take a walk. And that is just after sitting in front of a computer all day, you need to get outside, you need to clear your brain, you need to get in nature and you need to get steps. But being able to do it with him and actually just connecting on a daily basis has made me feel so much closer to him. And we've been married for a long time. So it's kind of been the silver lining for us. No, and it's definitely always important to, to find that, especially especially in a time like now. Julie, how would you say where you are right now and where you're heading? How does that compare with the professional trajectory that you had envisioned for yourself? It's such a good question. You know, when I envisioned launching, I envisioned it in a an open world where we would be traveling to meet with reporters and brands, and it would feel much more in real life. And launching a business during COVID has felt almost surreal because everything is happening behind a screen. And so I actually feel like it's a lot less fun. Um, You know, it really makes me appreciate just human contact and human interaction. So I'm not one of those people who's come to this conclusion that, wow, you never need to travel again. You can all work remotely and it's the same. I don't feel that way. And I think talking about fashion and shopping it's a fun topic and it's an engaging topic and everybody relates to it in some way. But, you know, there's certainly an aspect in today's world where it feels more superficial. And so 
I really like to think about it as a break from the heaviness of the world. It really is a fun app to play on. You know, we're using Instagram and TikTok and all of these other ways to kind of give ourselves some levity. And so instead of talking about fashion in terms of its cultural relevance and importance in the way we may have before and in building a, a new business um, that's now competing with sort of these big businesses, it feels almost like a different storyline, which is how do you build something that feels helpful and provides kind of a fun distraction in a time when people are feeling more disconnected from the world? And lastly, what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? Being an entrepreneurista is, you know, I think something that feels like the culmination of my lifelong dream. I didn't necessarily know it, although from a very early age, I had business ideas. I was selling braided barrettes and within me was sort of this desire to both create something that would bring something into the world, build a team and, you know, provide kind of a culture and an organization that inspired people to enjoy their work and be a part of something. And so it has been, I think, a gift that the whole world of venture has really morphed to be willing to bet on an individual. Um, And it has been really fun to do it as a woman. And I would say, One thing in particular that I remember saying to the room of investors at NEA when I went to raise money was just because I'm a woman and I'm not interested in starting sort of a small, cute niche business, I actually am interested in starting a multi-billion dollar business with a very big footprint. And this may be different from some of your other female entrepreneurs, because I feel like sometimes the focus on female entrepreneurs is a focus on kind of these small niche ideas. And certainly they're almost always wonderful and valid and needed because women are coming up with business ideas that fill a void that no one else is doing um, and men are not thinking of. But I also feel like it's important for women to start all kinds of businesses from like cool, small niche solutions to like an everyday real problem to I want to take on Amazon. So, you know, I think of it in those terms too. No, I absolutely love it. And we are so grateful that you came on to share your journey and your story. And we can't wait to follow along and watch the evolution of the yes. I know you have two new users right here who will definitely be be using the, the platform. Julie, thank you so much for being here. Where can everyone find you, follow you, and of course, download the yes? The yes. It's, it's a, it's, that's the name of the app in the iOS store. And we're app only right now on iOS. We have a website, theyes.com, that tells you a little more about us and gives you a link to download. And then an Instagram, we're the yes. Awesome. Thank you, Julie, so much. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Copyright Social Fly, all rights reserved. Thanks for listening. 